Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Brandon Shields. I serve as the lead pastor here at Soma Midtown. I want to welcome you to the teaching portion of our gathering. I also want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll continue our series in the book of Philippians. Um, We're going to read uh, verses 12 to 26. So hear these words. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know, um, just a question, I guess, to start this morning. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to sit down with somebody that you really admired or respected in your field, or maybe thought about how cool it would be to have a conversation with like a leader in your industry. Think of your workspace, or maybe uh, a, a, a role model or like a parent that you really respect, or uh, just uh, a boss that you really want to sit down with, your CEO maybe or a thought leader in your field. But um, think about how cool it would be to sit down and to have just a seasoned person walk you through, maybe you're stuck uh, in life or you're stuck with a problem and you're trying to think about how to, how to move forward in life. And uh, maybe you're going through something difficult or you're in one of those transition kind of inflection points in life and you're like, man, if I could just sit down with this author, with this celebrity, with this person and have a conversation, it would be so helpful. Well, I think this morning we have that kind of an opportunity uh, when we hear these words from the Apostle Paul, Paul is, again, uh, just for some context, Paul is uh, a church planter and a pastor, and he started this, this urban church in the strategic city of Philippi, and he's writing a letter as an old man. Uh, many people believe Paul is towards the end of his life here, and he's reflecting back on his experiences with this group of people. It's a family letter meant to encourage them, and he's sharing and dispensing just some deep wisdom um, about about life. And he's kind of unpacking his, it's a very personal um, kind of recounting of some of the things he's experienced and some of the lessons God's taught him through these things. And his hope is to call the Philippian church, eventually you're going to see later in chapters three and four, to imitate him. Imitate me, he says, as I imitate Christ in trying to live this, this kind of life. And, and so we have this opportunity to hear from Paul, a seasoned 
uh, mentor of sorts, um, unpacking for us what it looks like to be faithful as Christians through all the ups and downs of life. And so Paul starts this uh, little passage here um, reminding them of some things that have happened to him. He says, I want you to know, brothers or brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So the first question that we need to ask is, what is it actually that Paul's referring to? Obviously, he's referring to something that they would have had common knowledge of. What is it exactly that's happened to Paul that creates what one scholar calls a surprising reversal, like a very unexpected um, advance where uh, we'd expect there to be hindrance or retreat? And just again, to remind us of the context in Acts chapter 16, when Paul comes to Philippi, um, he has this supernatural revelation from God. The Holy Spirit gives him a dream and says, I want you to go to Macedonia, to this very important city, and I want you to preach about Jesus there. And there are all these conversions that are happening, and one in particular of a, a slave girl who was demon-possessed, who was being essentially exploited for financial gain by some of the, the, the leading power structures uh, and influential people in the city. And when she comes to Jesus and that spirit leaves and she's no longer able to be used as a commodity to be exploited for financial gain, um, it begins to upset the socioeconomic power structures in the city. And literally, a riot breaks out. And Paul is kind of taken by the crowd. He's stripped down and completely humiliated, um, stripped down naked. He's beaten um, and he's eventually put under house arrest as an enemy of the state, as an enemy of the Roman Empire. And so the church uh, at Philippi sends uh, Epaphroditus, who's one of uh, Paul's co-workers, um, with essentially cash and supplies, and they send him to check on Paul and to help Paul as he's in prison. And Epaphroditus actually returns with this letter from Paul, which is the letter to Philippians that we have here. And so Paul says, despite all of these things that you saw happen to me, despite the fact that I was involved in a riot and I was unjustly humiliated and imprisoned, um, and now actually sit under house arrest, chained to the Praetorian Guard, um, writing this letter in the midst of affliction. I want you to know how God has used these circumstances to bring about this surprising reversal. Like what would be expected to just kind of put somebody under and completely hinder uh, the cause of the gospel. Um, God takes this evil and this pain and he transforms it into progress. And that's what I want us to look at um, today, just in our time together, is how, how is it that God goes about this process of taking the evil in our lives and the pain that we experience as a result of this evil, the suffering that it causes us, and how does God convert or transform pain into progress? That is what I believe God wants to do in all of our lives, is take the painful things that happen to us and to kind of cut into them and to bring out of them progress and, and joy and good redemptive things. And this, this word progress is kind of the heart of the passage that we looked at today. It's mentioned actually twice. Paul talks about the advance or the progress of the gospel, and he talks about the progress of the community, and, uh, and that kind of bookends this passage. So we know that's an important thing. It's repeated several times. This word for advance is, uh, is actually a military word. It's the word prokopin, um, and it's a, it's a metaphor that kind of, if you imagine your uh, just kind of picture uh, a person or a group going before an army and clearing the way, cutting away any obstacles so that the army can advance without hindrance so that they can further their, their march. Or in Greek philosophy, it actually was used in Paul's day to mean the progress towards wisdom, the, the process that um, someone would, would kind of enter into to progress towards 
wisdom. And so how does God take pain? How does God take injustice and evil and transform it into progress? So I want to say a couple things about this. The first is um, we must have a really good understanding and theology of our pain. If we don't um, acknowledge pain, if we don't know what to do with pain, if we don't own our pain, it will own us. Paul was not shy in talking about the painful experiences they had gone through, even as an apostle. Like, gospel work is dangerous. And when we engage in preaching the good news of Jesus, um, it will put us in tight spaces. It is a subversive thing. It subverts politics. It subverts power structures. It subverts all kinds of philosophies. And it was, it was kind of an act of treason to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and to begin to liberate uh, people that were previously exploited. Um, so you put yourself on the front lines of this injustice. And what happened to Paul, we have to acknowledge, was evil. I mean, full stop. There's no way to kind of twist this or turn this or minimize this. What Paul here is rejoicing. And so twice he's going to talk about in this passage, rejoicing in the midst of pain. And I think we need to be careful and not misunderstand what's happening here, because oftentimes how we as Christians, what we want to do with this is we want to rejoice in the pain itself rather than rejoicing in the progress of the gospel on the other side of that pain. And so what Paul is rejoicing in here when he says, I rejoice in this, is not in the, the evil itself. He's not rejoicing in the injustice. He's not trying to reframe it. Um, he is rejoicing in the progress that is happening in that pain, um, not the evil of this unjust and dehumanizing and humiliating experience that he's gone through. I mean, this is evil. It is as evil as what happened in Nazi Germany. It is as evil as any kind of uh, you know, wickedness that you could imagine. And so uh, Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar, says this about um, Paul's rejoicing. He says, his joy is not over his imprisonment as such. That kind of morbid thanking God for all things lies outside Paul's own theological perspective. No, the pain is there. And some are indeed preaching Christ, we even see from this passage, from false motives, and it hurts Paul deeply. And so um, we need to understand that Paul here is not trying to minimize or deny pain or the reality of evil. And, and, and that's really the question that I think we have to start with this. How do we see evil? How do we understand injustice in the world? What do we do when we kind of uh, you know, confront evil in our lives? Um, oftentimes I see uh, Christians in particular respond to evil in ways that tend to focus on like, why is this happening? And so common responses to evil uh, from a Christian standpoint, you hear this all the time in church, I think there's two primary ways I see Christians engaging evil and talking about and thinking about and responding to evil. One is to try to reframe evil. Like there's this kind of pushing into or or um, kind of minimizing or um, this kind of passive-aggressive form of denying evil where we kind of uh, something bad happens to us and we say, oh, it's okay, it's good, you know, God works all things for the good of those who love him. We'll come back to that in just a second. Or God is in control and it's just this kind of flippancy and reframing, like needing to see evil as somehow part of God's master plan and God is this puppet master who's inflicting this evil on us. Um, on the other side, there are those who, um, rather than trying to put a positive spin, just go super negative, and they, they go to blaming. So they don't try to reframe. They just blame. There's this bitterness towards God. Or maybe they even see this evil as something that they've brought on themselves, and so there's a kind of self-contempt. And this impulse that we have to, on the one hand, either credit God or to blame God for all evil and pain in the world, 
I actually think is not very helpful. One, I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's theologically accurate. Um, but I, I, it's practically, it's just not helpful because what it does is actually gets us stuck in our pain. And what we often then do in our pain, in the midst of evil, is we weaponize that pain, oftentimes unconsciously, and, and we inflict further pain on other people. And we end up living from a place of hurt rather than healing. We live out of our pain. We get stuck in our pain. We get paralyzed in our pain. We get in this place where we're overanalyzing, trying to figure out why did this happen to me and who's to blame for this? And it's like, if I can control it, if I can figure out who's responsible for it, then I can control it and I can, I can be a victim and I can just kind of uh, live out of this place of hurt rather than moving through the pain to the other side of uh, God's redemptive purposes. And so what we need to see here is that evil, biblically speaking, is super complex. It's never as easy as, well, God did this or God didn't do this. Like sometimes, sure, the responsibility for evil and suffering and pain falls into this mysterious providence of God um, and and the larger purposes of God. But evil is never uh, God's desire for human flourishing. Evil was never part of God's intended plan, his, his will for uh, human flourishing. Oftentimes, evil we see in the Bible is the result of satanic activity. Sometimes Satan is the one to blame. Sometimes it's, it's sin, um, it's the sin of other people, our own sin. Like evil is always evil and should never be called good. I mean, that's, that's the heart of Buddhism, right? Like we, we take something evil and we want to reframe it as good. That's a denial of evil and it doesn't serve anyone uh, in terms of being helpful. Slavery is evil. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing uh, inherently redemptive or intrinsically redemptive about 400 years of slavery in America. Abuse and trauma are evil. Cancer is evil. Death, uh, the death of a parent, the death of a child is evil. Miscarriage is evil. Infertility is evil. Divorce is evil. COVID-19 is evil. And to call it good is to miss the, uh, the very essence of what God wants to do. And so we've got to learn to deal honestly with our pain, to see that, um, that, that, that evil is evil, and how we deal with our pain is um, super important. Um, Richard Rohr, who is an author, he wrote a book called Adam's Return about uh, manhood. One of his main points that he says uh, men, and I really would argue all people need to learn to embrace, is that life is hard, and what we do with our pain has significant implications for our journey towards maturity. He says this, all great spirituality is about what we do with our pain. If we do not transform our pain, we will transmit it in some form to other people. And he goes on to list some of the ways that if we don't, if we can't acknowledge our pain, if we can't learn to see evil as evil and to to kind of own our pain, he says a couple of things. We'll become inflexible or blaming and petty as we get older. All of us can think of people like that. We will need other people to hate in order to expel our inner negativity. We'll play the victim in some form as a means of false power. We will spend our lives seeking security and status as a cover-up for a lack of a substantial sense of self. We will pass on the deadness caused by our pain to our families, to our children, to our friends, even to our community and the institutions that we participate in. And so it is massively important that we learn to own our pain because if we don't, it will own us. And Paul was a person that could talk openly about his pain. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about all of this pain, all of this despair, all of these things that he's gone through as 
an apostle. He was not afraid to talk about it, and he's not here rejoicing in his pain. He's not somehow saying, oh, I'm so glad that God put me in prison, or I'm so glad that I was humiliated. I'm so glad that I was unjustly treated. What he's rejoicing in is what God is doing in the midst of that pain. That's the first thing that I want us to kind of see here. The second thing is I want us to see how pain provokes clarity for Paul, how pain provokes clarity for Paul and how it can provoke clarity for us. Notice in verse 18, as Paul uh, is kind of thinking about what God is doing in the midst of uh, his imprisonment, like notice um, that pain and the possibility of an impending death. Remember, Paul is on trial in Rome for alleged crimes against the state because of his work with Jesus. And so his future here is uncertain. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Is he going to be found innocent and released as a Roman citizen? Is he going to be found guilty uh, and possibly executed? We know the end of the story that Paul eventually is martyred for his faith. But right here, Paul has no idea. Am I going to be released or am I not going to be released? And so he says, uh, I know that in the end, I'm going to be delivered. That is uh, a quote from Job, uh, Job 16, 13. I'm going to be vindicated, he says, one way or another. But as it stands right now, as I think about my life, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And this, this kind of um, reflecting on his death kind of launches him out into this thought experiment, and it leads Paul to do some reflecting on his own life. And I would call this like courageous curiosity. Paul had an ability to reflect on his life in a deep and profound way that led to clarity in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of even facing an impending death. And, and Paul here isn't like suicidal. Like some people think Paul's like contemplating suicide. That's not what's going on here. He's not going through an existential crisis. This is a deliberate thought experiment, right? He doesn't actually have a real choice. He's not choosing between death and life. That's out of his control. He's powerless. But I would argue as a master teacher and mentor, what Paul is doing is inviting the Philippians into his inner world so that they can see how this painful situation is provoking a kind of self-reflection for Paul um, inside of him. Not about why this is happening to him. Notice Paul never says, God, why are you doing this? The reflection is about God's presence with him in the midst of this. God, what are you doing and who are you calling me to love and serve in the midst of this injustice and evil? And the the fruit of this reflective process is clarity for Paul, right? And I think what Paul is doing is trying to kindle a similar mindset, similar desires in the uh, church the church at Philippi, as they wrestle through their own encounters with evil and pain and suffering and disunity. And so Paul arrives at this beautiful statement. I mean, again, just one of the classic statements of Paul, kind of his life motto here uh, in verse 21, for to me, as I reflect on my life and I think about where God has me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Literally, it's to live Christ. There's no verb there. To live Christ, to die gain. That is Paul's perspective. That's the clarity. That's the fruit of reflecting on where God has him, even in the midst of this injustice. He says, all I know as I reflect on and I think about what's happening in my life, I think about all that God has done with me and in me and through me, it brings him back to this basic proclamation, this basic life mantra for, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What does Paul mean by 
to, for, for me to live is Christ. Gerald Hawthorne, one commentator on this passage, says this, to say living is Christ is to say that for Paul, life means Christ. Life is summed up in Christ. Life is filled up with, occupied with Christ. In the sense that everything Paul does, his trust, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on, is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration and direction and meaning and purpose to existence. That is Paul's belief. That is his hope. That is what he is trying to live into. That's the narrative and the story of Paul's life that for him, everything is about Christ. And he goes on in verses 22 to 24 to kind of weigh out like these options that he has between continuing on in the flesh or continue on alive and being, being killed, being martyred. And he, and, he, and he has this kind of uh, wrestling here in his mind um, he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between these two options. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul says, man, if I depart, that would actually be better for me. This idea of departing is, again, a military term, an army that's striking out from camp and moving on, or a ship that's being released from its mooring and sailing off. In other words, Paul's saying, uh, ultimately, if I were to die, death is gain because to die is to be with Christ, right? But also, like, if I continue to live, living means I get to preach Christ. I get to represent Christ among you in my ministry. If I suffer, he says, even that is making, more, making me more like Jesus. For Paul, everything is about Jesus Christ. And, and this paradox here is not that Paul's, like, again, struggling with or trying to make a, a decision between these two competing desires, right? These are very complementary options. He essentially is like, I, I can't call it. I can't tell uh, what I would actually choose because at the end of the day, both of these options are about Christ. Christ is with me. Christ is for me in the midst of uh, my suffering, in the midst of these, these pains and this injustice and this evil. And like Paul, I would argue that the painful situations that we walk through, so for Paul, that looked like persecution, that looked like, uh, you know, death eventually, martyrdom, it looked like, uh, you know, injustice and imprisonment. Um, for us living in America, that is going to look probably pretty different for us, right? But these painful situations, maybe, again, it's divorce, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's abuse and trauma, maybe it is um, opposition or hostility or infertility or whatever it is that you're walking through, like these painful situations, when we encounter hard things in life, they become an opportunity for us to look inside ourselves and to reflect on what really matters, to, to through this process of reflection, to be reminded about the fact that God is with us, that God is for us, and that God has not abandoned us in the midst of our suffering. Because that's, I think, what we want to know more than anything else is, are we alone in the midst of our suffering? Are we alone in the midst of our pain? That is the clarity that we need more than anything else. Not to understand why, but to understand who is with us and what it is that God is calling us to do. So for Paul, that was just an anchor for his identity. That was an anchor for him. And one of the things that allowed him to move through his pain to the other side, and for him to be able to rejoice, to say, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't understand why. I'm not going to get preoccupied in trying to make sense of this or try to draw some kind of meaning for this, right? Like, I don't understand it. Like, 
Maybe it's Satan. Maybe it's sin. I don't know why, but I know that I can rejoice. I know that I can find a confidence and a resilience because I know that God is with me. He is with me. He is present with me in the midst of this pain. Now, why does this matter? Why is it so important for us to hang on to this reality that Christ is with us, that he's for us, that whether we live or whether we die, we get Christ. That is the ultimate reward. Paul's ability to convert pain to joy leads, is the thing that leads to the progress of the gospel and the progress of the community's faith in Christ. And I would argue this is what's at stake as we face evil and we face pain and we face our suffering. We look it in the face and we try to navigate the painful realities of life. Our progress and the progress of the gospel and the progress of our community are intertwined in this kind of beautiful dance, this dance that God is is working out in our sanctification as we become more and more like Jesus. Our progress in the faith, our ability to find joy in pain is tied up with our ability to um, see the gospel advance and to see the faith of those around us advance. Paul's personal progress is so bound up with the progress of the gospel and the progress of the Philippians that he can't speak about one without speaking about the other two. So his ability to allow God to transform that pain into a new perspective and into progress, man, was everything. Like if Paul gets paralyzed, if Paul gets stuck, if Paul doesn't move through that journey with God and he's not able to say to live as Christ and to die is gain, um, then man, like there, there's, there's a lot of ramifications for the gospel moving forward. And it's the same for us. Like our ability to not get stuck in our pain has massive implications for the advancement of the gospel in the world. Because pain, last thing we see here, opens up surprising opportunities for gospel progress. Pain opens up surprising opportunities for progress. That's Paul's concern. Again, go back to verse 12. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Verse 24, to remain, to stay in the flesh, to remain alive is necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I know that I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. When we get clear on the fact that Christ is with us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of evil, in the midst of injustice. And we understand that God is working, that he is with us, working out his purposes in the world. We can begin to move beyond the passivity and the anger and the bitterness and the preoccupation and the paralysis that comes by just looking at our pain apart from this larger perspective. And we can begin to look around now and have a perspective that is open to see the surprising opportunities for the good progress of the gospel that God wants to work in the midst of our pain. I can now lift my head up and stop looking at myself, stop you know, pointing fingers at people, stop playing uh, victim, and I can actually see. I mean, again, these are real injustices. They really hurt. They're really painful. But I don't have to respond by getting trapped or getting locked into that pain, but rather I begin to see all around me opportunities that God has given me to use that pain um, to advance his purposes in the world. I think of this great verse uh, in Romans chapter 8 that we oftentimes talk about, but many people misunderstand. Romans 8.28, I mean, I think this is a very similar kind of idea that Paul's unpacking here uh, to the church at Rome. He says, God works all things together 
for the good or for the benefit, this is how it's typically translated, for the good or for the benefit of, of those or for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, again, it's important that we understand what this means and what this doesn't mean. The word that we typically translate work for the good of um, actually um, means work together with. So we typically interpret this as like God is d- d- taking these like evil things and, and maybe calling them good things and then using them for our benefit. But like that doesn't sound right. Like if you've ever walked through evil and injustice, like you know that there's nothing good. There's nothing inherently good about what happens to us as we suffer. And so I, I think there's a deeper meaning here to this passage. And I think it comes by uh, understanding the translation here. I think th- this word that we translate work for the good of actually means work together with, to work together with. It's used throughout the New Testament to talk about Paul's fellow workers in the gospel, his colleagues, or God working through his apostles to bring about good in the world. So what I think Paul is actually saying here is not that evil is good. Again, that's Buddhism. Um, But he's saying God takes these evil things and he intervenes, he interjects, he, he brings out of them good things that he uses to advance his good purposes in the world. And it's not that they benefit us in the sense that they're good in and of themselves, but rather God is working all things towards an ultimate good with and through those who love him. Not to the benefit of those necessarily, but with and through those who love him and are called according to his purpose in Christ. And this calling, I think, is the calling to be a part of his saving purposes in the world. This is what we're called to do as we experience evil and injustice. We turn to God and we look to God and we depend on him. We remember that he is our life. To live is Christ, to die is game. Suffering and evil and pain and injustice cannot touch that part of us that is in communion with God, is in union with God. And as we are experiencing that pain, we now can see opportunities to participate with God in his redemptive purposes in the world because he is with us. It's a call to active engagement, right? Oftentimes in the face of our pain, we get passive. We, we get resigned and we have this kind of stoic resignation to life. Well, this must be just God's good purposes. And we kind of resign ourselves to like all of this evil. And what I, see, what I think we see in the life of Paul is this active engagement. If you go on down in verse 27, we'll talk more about this next week. Paul says, I, I pray that you are standing firm, that you're striving side by side, contending for the faith of the gospel, engaged in this conflict, right? It's this active invitation to be participants in God's work of redemption in the world. So our role, Paul would say, is not just to sit back passively and to say, well, I wonder how God's going to redeem this situation. No, it's to actually partner with God to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world while we're experiencing pain and evil and injustice. It's not to stop. It's not to get paralyzed. It's to say, God, how do you want to use me to advance your purposes even while I'm suffering? I love the way that N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says it. He says, Paul is not then proposing a Christian version of Stoicism. He is offering a Jesus-shaped picture of a suffering, redeeming providence. That's what we see in Romans uh, chapter 8, right before 28, a suffering, redeeming providence. God, through his spirit, groaning with all of creation, groaning inside of us uh, in labor pains is the language, to bring about his redemption, in which God's people, he says, are themselves, not simply spectators, not simply beneficiaries, but active 
participants. They are called according to his purpose, since God is even now using their groaning at the heart of the world's pain as the vehicle for the Spirit's own work. Holding that sorrow before the Father, creating a context for the multiple works of healing and hope. Such God lovers are therefore shaped according to the pattern of the Son, the cruciform pattern in which God's justice and mercy, His faithfulness to covenant and to creation, are displayed before the world in tears and toil, in lament and labor. And that's what we see here in the life of Paul. God invites him into these surprising opportunities to, uh, to advance the gospel for this mutual gospel progress. I mean, Paul's adversity, right? Like, he's locked up in prison. What, what the evil one meant for evil in, in, in justly humiliating Paul backfires. Like, Paul gets to infiltrate, like a Trojan horse gets to infiltrate the very center of imperial power, the very people who are trying to stop him from preaching the gospel, Paul is now interjected into and is chained to the Praetorian Guard, this group of 9,000 soldiers that would have served as the elite imperial guard for uh, the emperor, for the Caesar. And these guards would have been chained to Paul in rotations of four hours. And over the course of years, Paul gets to share the gospel with those. And we see that some of them become converts uh, to Jesus. It emboldens other Christians to share the gospel. The church gets to participate um, in, in praying for Paul and supplying the Holy Spirit, right? Like there's active participation that goes both ways between Paul and the church. And Paul says, I get to continue this fruitful labor for your progress and your joy in the faith. I mean, that's what God is inviting us into in the midst of our pain. God wants to transform and to take our pain and to convert it into progress in so many surprising ways, ways that we would never guess in the midst of our adversity. God says, I am placing you here. I am using this evil, and out of this evil, I'm going to resurrect. Out of this death, I'm going to bring this renewal. I'm going to bring this resurrection, and I'm going to bring about my good purposes, and I'm going to do that through you. That is our vocation as followers of Jesus. And so I just close by asking us the question, how are you seeing your pain? How are you experiencing your pain? How are you allowing God to transform your pain into gospel progress? I think one of the evidences that we're growing in maturity is that we're able to see and to talk about evil and pain and hurt without blaming, without getting preoccupied or fixated on it, without minimizing it, right? And and we're able to talk about it and see it and call it evil. Like, yes, that was evil. That was horrible. That was terrible. Like, I I never want to go through that again. But in the midst of that, we are also seeing God present with us, seeing Christ present with us in that pain and using that for his redemptive purposes in our lives. I mean, I don't know about you, but these are the kind of people I long to spend time with. These are the kind of people that encourage me when I'm going through my own pain. Like, they're able to come alongside us and exercise compassion and connect with us, and we can learn from them because they just have this wisdom. They're not shallow. They're not these happy, clappy Christians who are like, oh, yeah, you know, God's in control of everything in kind of this very superficial way. They're relatable. I mean, they're so authentic. They're integrated. They're whole. They're wise. They're deep. And I believe this is, these are the kind of people that God wants to raise up in a broken world experiencing so much injustice and evil. If we're going to live in a world like that and we're going to bear fruit, it's going to be labor. It will be hard work. But man, this is what God's calling us towards as a, tip, a people, to learn to live in that pain and to find joy 
in what God is doing in us and through us. Not to find joy in the pain, not to find joy in the injustice, not to call it good, but to lead from a place of healing and not a place of hurt, a place where we can see God present with us in the midst of our pain. And I think about so many people in my life. A a man named Rich Plass has been that kind of person for me over the past couple of years, like a mentor, a friend, a counselor. He was a, a pastor who went through so much tragedy and difficulty in his own life. And yet now, as a seven-year-old man, he's able to come alongside myself, my wife, even people in our church, and just be a source, just like an unending source of encouragement for me. I mean, this is, this is what God is doing in our lives. I think of the civil rights movement, the power of the civil rights movement, and the leaders who were followers of Jesus was in their ability to allow God. I think about Fannie Lou Hamer or Frederick Douglass or Dr. King, I mean, all these people, the secret was they were able to not get stuck, not get wounded or or trapped in their pain, but to allow God to convert their pain, transform their pain into the progress and the advancement of the gospel. And that was the secret that gave them strength and power to live a different kind of life that was compelling and a beautiful alternative to what we see uh, with so much of the evil and injustice in our world. Let me just pray for us, and I want you to just take some time this week to reflect on your own life, your own heart. What is God doing in the midst of your pain? How, do you, how are you experiencing that pain? Are you allowing God, are you surrendering that pain to God, allowing him to transform you in the midst of it? What have you experienced in your life? What evil, what injustice, what pain are you walking through? And how, how, how are you seeing God in that? How are you learning to integrate that in such a way that you can say, yes, to live as Christ to die is game. And I see these opportunities that God has placed around me to continue to advance his good purposes. He is with me, partnering with me to bring about ultimate good as one who's called according to this purpose to live this out in all the spheres of influence God has placed me in. Let me pray for us that that would be true of us this week. Father, I thank you for um, the, uh, the good news here that despite our pain, despite the evil and injustice that we experience in the world, that you are at work bringing about your redemptive purposes in our lives. And so, God, I pray that we could be honest and acknowledge the pain and and the suffering that we walk through, not turn away from that or minimize that or try to reframe that or spin that in a way that is, frankly, unhelpful and unbiblical. But, God, we'd be able to see that for the evil it is, and yet still, despite that evil, say, there is one who is overcoming that evil. There is one who, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is bringing about his good purposes in the world, and he is taking evil, and he is, he is in this mysterious way, providing a new matrix for our lives. And the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we now see our own lives caught up in that story of death and resurrection, and we can see and begin to see bits and pieces of how God wants to use us to advance the gospel, to preach the gospel, to embody the gospel in all the places where God has called us to live. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to have that perspective on our pain, to get clarity on what is true about us at the core, and to live out of that clarity with a sense of resilience uh, in our lives uh, here in the weeks and the months and the years to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.